Right. Well, I want to apologize in advance. Um, I'm hopped up on cold medicine right now, so I may cough. I'm going to try my best not to cough directly into the mic and blow your ears out. But uh, it is that season of the year. I know a lot of us are coughing and sniffling. Um, before we get into the message this morning, I, I, I want to say something, if I could. Uh, this past week <clears throat> has been a really big, significant week in the Bloom household. Um, uh, earlier, for three of our four boys, there's been significant events that have happened in this week. So uh, on Tuesday night, our youngest son, John, was in a play, and he had like one of the major roles in a play, and he just killed it. He did an incredible job. Uh, on Wednesday, our son, Andrew, uh, got third place in the conference cross-country meet and made all-conference. Um, so that was an incredible thing to be able to experience. And then Fox 17 this past week did a news story on our son Aaron and the Halloween party that he throws every year. So, um, and so that there was a big story that was done on that. My wife and he uh, were interviewed for that. So here, here's why I tell you that. Something just became really clear to me this past week. Uh, a whole bunch of frontliners came out to my son's play on Tuesday night. Um, there have been several people here from Frontline who have come to cross-country meets for Andrew over the last couple of months and have just been there encouraging him in his corner. And then uh, so many of you have reached out to me and said something about uh, the, the news story and the Halloween party and all that kind of stuff. And so it, it just, I felt like maybe led to just say this morning, thank you, Frontline Church, for the way that you love my kids. Uh, that's just really important to me. Um, this is Pastor Appreciation Month, the month of October, and, and I, here's the thing, I feel loved by you guys. My wife and I have always felt loved and appreciated by the church here at Frontline, but one of the things that is just so amazing to me is how my kids also feel loved by you guys. And you may, you may not know this, but pastor's kids, sometimes that's not the deal. That's not the way it is oftentimes. Pastors' kids have kind of a complicated relationship with the church where their dad pastors, and they get to a point where they kind of push away a lot of times, or they want to go a different direction, or um, just kind of rebel or whatever. I just want you to know, at this point in time anyway, none of my boys feel that way. They love our church. They feel loved by you guys. Uh, in fact, my son, uh, Alan, he graduated from high school this past May, and when he graduated, I said to him, <clears throat> you know, buddy, you're 18 now. If you want to go find your own church, a church that's, you know, not your, where your dad pastors or whatever, like, I totally get it. That's completely fine. You can go do that. And he was just like, are you kidding me? Why would I do that? This is my home too. And um, that was just an incredible thing. I just realized how incredibly blessed I am and that we are as a family to be in a church where um, not just I feel that way, but my kids truly feel loved by you. So thank you. I just wanted to say that to you. And um, yeah. So enough mushy stuff. Let's get to the sermon. <laughs> Sound good? Uh, we are in week number three of a series called The Table. What we're doing is we're talking about our vision as a church, these five zeros that make up the vision of Frontline. <clears throat> and so to get us into the one that we're talking about today, I'll begin this way. Uh, Greyhound dog racing is something that's been a huge sport in our country for years and years and years now. But I don't know if you've seen this in the news recently, but it's becoming kind of like a sport that's in its final days. Uh, Greyhound dog racing is being outlawed in more and more states now. And so I read this article recently where I learned a whole bunch of stuff about Greyhound dog racing as it was talking about the sport and kind of what's happening with it. And here's something I've always wondered. I've always wondered, how do they get the dogs to race? Has anybody else ever wondered that before? Like, how do they get a bunch of dogs to race and around an oval track while human beings bet on them? 
You know, like that's not really, most dogs I've known, that's really not their motivation. Like, man, I just really wish I could race around an oval track some other dogs so that human beings can make money on me. That's just really not an internal motivation that a dog has. And so I learned something from this article. Do you know how they get the dogs to race? Does anybody know? Yes, somebody said it. That's right. That what they do is they have this fake rabbit that they bring out. Its, its name is Rusty. Well, at least in Florida where this article was about it, its name is Rusty. And so what happens is they will literally bring out this fake rabbit. And so the dogs are in their cages and the announcer will literally say, here's Rusty. And the dogs will just go crazy. They'll start banging around in their cages. They're just itching to get a hold of Rusty. And so Rusty, usually it's controlled by a person. And a lot of times he's like on a rail that goes around the inside of the track. And so when the gates open, there goes Rusty. And these dogs just tear off. And they're not, you, know, you see pictures like this. You think they're just racing each other. That's not what they're doing. They're actually, they're trying to catch Rusty. That's really what they're doing. They're just trying their hardest to catch this fake, stupid, stuffed rabbit. And so they'll go all the way around the track. And they'll get to the finish line. Suddenly, Rusty will disappear. And the dogs just kind of stop. And they stand there like, oh, man, we almost caught him that time. That's how dogs sound, by the way, when they talk to each other. And... Uh, so, so that's how they get the dogs to race. Now, this article said it doesn't happen very often. It's rare. But every once in a while, one of the dogs will catch Rusty. Either the, the guy controlling Rusty isn't quick enough or one of the dogs is just exceptionally fast and kind of leaps out. And they'll get a hold of Rusty and tear into Rusty. And when that happens, that dog will never race again. The jig is up. Like the dog realizes it's been taken and when that happens, the owner of that dog, if it ever catches Rusty, he's like, Ugh, because he knows that dog will never, ever race again. And that is where the dogs are actually smarter than we are. So I was reading that article. The thought that occurred to me was, you know what? Many of us have caught Rusty too. We've gotten the house. We've gotten the car. We managed to move into the corner office. We've had the affair. We tried the drugs. And whereas the dog realizes that it's been taken, as human beings, we don't. What we say to ourselves is, well, that Rusty wasn't the one. That didn't do what I thought it was going to do, but I'm sure the next one will be. And so we just keep up the pursuit. We just keep up the search for the ultimate Rusty. The zero that we are looking at today is the zero called Zero Gods Before God. It's this idea, what does it mean to pursue zero gods before God? It means we allow Jesus as we pursue him to identify the Rusties in our lives. By the way, I want to thank Lainey Alkenbrack for the use of her uh, stuffed rabbit. Really appreciate that, Lainey. Uh, her mom told her it's for Jesus. And she was like, all right, okay, I'll do it. So um, that's where, what we're about, manipulating children. Uh, anyway, we can't. So, um, uh, so what God wants to do is he wants to identify the Rusties in your life. He wants to identify the, the idols, the addictions in our lives that we chase after, believing if I just catch the next one, if I just, this one wasn't it, but I'm sure the next one is going to be it. If you want a good definition for what an idol is, like what exactly is that? A great definition of an idol is, an idol is anything that cools your love for Jesus. That's actually a quote from Susanna Wesley, John Wesley's mother, she said, an idol is anything in your life that cools your love for Jesus. Sometimes that's a sin. 
It's something that is blatantly a sin. It's wrong and you know it, but you just keep going back to it. You keep visiting the website. You keep returning because you're hooked and you just can't stop. Other times, it's not a sin. Sometimes it's actually good stuff. Things that we all would say, man, those are actually positive things in our lives, but they've taken a place of priority. They've taken a seat in our lives of ultimate importance. And what happens is when that, when that takes place, it robs us from the best things, the life of abundance that Jesus actually has for us. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 14. In fact, uh, we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells, and we're going to look at it this week and then again next week from a different angle. But to give you a little bit of the setting of the story, Jesus in Luke 14, he, he's at the house of a Pharisee sitting around a table. He's been invited to a prominent wealthy Pharisee's house for a meal. Now, we said a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees, uh, together with the Sadducees, they were basically the, the people, the ruling elite of the religious society. They ran the religious institution of the day. And what they believed is actually not that different from what we believe. We're kind of hard on the Pharisees, but they believed something. What they believed is that God was going to bless Israel if just all the Israelites, if all God's people could just get together and stop sinning and stop, you know, in the impurity of their lives and what they were doing. They thought if, if everybody would just get together and do that, then God would bless Israel. So their basic message was try harder to be good. Try harder to be good, put more effort into it. If we all can get better and just be better people, live purer lives, then things will get better for us. It's really, we believe that a lot of times too, don't we, as people? And so Jesus is sitting there, Luke 14, starting in verse 15. It says, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. That, that believe it or not, that's a loaded statement. In, in, a, in a home of a wealthy, prominent Pharisee and a meal in the ancient world, you would have had like all these invited guests who were very prominent and important. But then you also, at a home like this, you would have had all these people listening in to the conversation. And this guy at the table says to Jesus, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So the first question we have to ask is, what is he talking about, <laughs> right? What feast in the kingdom of God? What's he referencing? What this guy, clearly the guy at the table knew the Old Testament of the Bible very well. What he was referencing was this feast that's talked about in the Old Testament and then again and again in the New Testament it's referenced. It's a metaphor for what life will be like in the kingdom of God when the Messiah returns to rule and to reign. It's this picture of this great feast in heaven. And that was this metaphor that was used over and over and over again. It was the, this eternal feast of, of the kingdom of God. And so what this guy is doing is he's saying, blessed are those who are at the feast in the kingdom of God. He says this to Jesus. Maybe he has a sense that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe he's wondering if that's the case. And so he's kind of saying, hey, blessed are those who are at the feast. In other words, Jesus, he's asking them to comment on who he thinks is going to be at the feast. Like who, who's going to be there? Surely us right here at this table, Right? I mean, we're, we're in, obviously, right, Jesus? Blessed are those. Who, who do you think Jesus is going to be at the feast in your kingdom someday? That's what he's asking Jesus. That's what he's trying to get him to comment on. Just to give you a little bit of a sense of this feast in the kingdom of God and the way that they thought about it, Isaiah chapter 25 is a place in the Bible 
that you can find a reference to this. Isaiah the prophet lived about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And yet what he wrote in Isaiah 25 about the feast in the kingdom of God was all about what Jesus came to do. It was all about the gospel. Take a listen. It's not going to pop up on the screen, but listen to how he describes it. Verse 6, he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, and in that day they will say, those of us who are at the feast in the kingdom of God, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. Not we worked harder, we tried to be better, and finally we arrived, we achieved it, and we made it. We put our trust and our faith in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So so the picture that we're given uh, of this feast, if you could go ahead to that next slide there, it's the, the kind of three quick descriptions from this feast in Isaiah 25. First of all, it's an abundance that's provided at God's expense. It's the gospel. It's a picture of what Jesus came to do. It's this feast, the finest of meats, the best of wines. Imagine a table is just like overflowing with food, really good food. And, and as soon as the food on the table gets consumed, people are just bringing more and more and more. You can never like completely exhaust all the resources. It's abundance provided at God's expense. Not your own expense, not your own effort, but what God did on the cross. Second, it's a picture of all the nations being represented. The picture of the gospel going out to all the nations of the earth. All the people are there, not just your ethnic group, not just people who look and sound like you, all the nations. And thirdly, what we're celebrating at this great feast is that death has been swallowed up forever. By Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection, he conquered death and he saved us. We put our trust in him and he saved us. That's the gospel message. And so this guy is sitting there, and he's like, uh, hey, Jesus, who's going to be at that feast? Like, who? Like, do, can you comment on that? Because it's me, right? It's us. It's our group. Surely, right? And in answer, Jesus tells this story. And here's the story we're going to look at this morning. Verse 16, Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready... He sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges. Some translations of this say the highways and the byways. And urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. 
For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. That's how Jesus answers the guy's question about who's going to be there in the feast in the kingdom of God in heaven. So basically this story is, it's a, it's a story about a series of characters that are invited to come to this feast. And so uh, go ahead to that next one there. Uh, we'll just look at each one of the, this kinda, these different groups of characters that are invited. First of all, you have the initial guests. They're the initial guests that are, in, that are sent an invitation and are invited to come to the banquet. And many, many people believe this would have represented the Jewish people, the Israelites. They had the law. They had the prophets. And they, they knew the scriptures. But what happens is with each one of these guests that are in, invited, they all, each one, one after another, come up with like a lame excuse of why they can't make it to the banquet. And by the way, these are lame excuses, my friends. You would never buy a field in the ancient world without going to inspect it first. That's ridiculous. Hey, I paid a bunch of money for a field. I got to go look at it and see if it's any good. You would never buy five pair of oxen without first going and seeing them and trying them out to make sure they could plow. In fact, buying five pair of oxen in the ancient world meant you were extremely wealthy. So these are people who are, are wealthy. They have status. They, they've made it. To, to, to be able to purchase a field, to be able to purchase not just one pair of oxen, which would have been a lot for one family, but five pair of oxen. This was abundance. And then the last guy's like, well, I just got married, so I can't come. Which maybe that isn't a lame excuse. Maybe that's a fair one. Maybe we'll just leave that one alone. But the other ones are, are kind of lame, right? They, they give these lame excuses. What these excuses reveal are priorities. They're not bad things. It's not bad to own land. It's not bad to be in a place where you can have five pair of oxen. But they, they weren't bad things, but they had become priorities in a way that kept them from actually coming to the invitation to the banquet. These three things that are listed as excuses, Jesus says, land, possessions in the form of five pair of oxen, and relationships. These were like the trifecta of success in the ancient world. Like if you wanted to, like what's the picture of success? What does it mean to have arrived to prove yourself? You, had, you were able to own your own land. You had possessions like five pair of oxen, and you had relationships. You, you had a good marriage. With, it was a good social contract in the community and were well thought of. Those were like the most important things. You knew you'd arrived. You knew you'd made it. You had proved yourself if you had those three things. We're, we're not that different, are we? In many ways, these, these are the same kind of areas that we have in our lives that we use to, to control and manipulate. And if we can, we can succeed at these areas, man, we've made it. We've arrived at the top. We've proved ourselves. And we're successful. A few years ago, I was... Um, I was on a missions trip to Haiti, and I was with a group of pastors in Port-au-Prince, and we were ministering to other pastors, and so I'm in one of the poorest cities in one of the poorest countries in the world. And I remember we would, we would ride in our van um, down this road every single day, and, and we would drive past this, it was this Christian orphanage that was there in the city of Port-au-Prince. And what I remember about this uh, orphanage is that basically they're, they're doing this great work. They're taking in kids that were on the streets, not long after the earthquake this was, and it was, they, were, they had been abandoned and, or they just didn't have parents and taking care of them. And they were taking these kids in. They were providing for them, giving them education, giving them food, clothing. And they were, most importantly, they were teaching them about Jesus. So these kids are learning about Christ. And I remember, like, we would drive by this orphanage, and every day these kids were about the same time. They would all be outside playing soccer in this field. 
that was right there attached to the orphanage. I, I say field because it, it was little more than just like an open space. There was hardly any grass growing. And there was like trash everywhere on this field. There was broken glass. I remember like looking and some of these kids actually had bare feet and they're just running around in the soccer field with all this broken glass. And they're kicking around a soccer ball but what the soccer ball looked like, it looked like what they had done is taken a bunch of water bottles and crumpled them up and they just tied some rubber bands around the water bottles. So that's what they were kicking around for their soccer ball. And these kids are laughing and they're smiling. Every day we go by and they were just having a ball out there. They're just, just cracking up, laughing, just enjoying themselves as only kids on a playground with no adult supervision can. And they're enjoying every second of it. And the thought I remember having as we would drive by, the thought that went through my mind as I looked at them was, why are you so happy? Seriously, from my Western American eyes, looking at their situation, it was like, why are you so happy? I got on a plane and flew back to the States, got back here in Grand Rapids from that trip. And the very next morning after getting off the plane, I had a meeting first thing in the morning with a guy who had set up the meeting before I even went to Haiti. He wanted to talk with me as a pastor. And so I went and I sat down and this guy, was, he was going through a really tough time. Uh, he was a wealthy uh, business owner and the homeowners association in his upscale gated neighborhood was not allowing him to make what he felt like was a completely fair improvement to his house. So he explained it in detail what it was. He had a, a three-car garage, but what he wanted to do is he wanted to build uh, another 40 by 40 foot garage attached to his existing garage. But this one, he wanted to sink into the ground so it would have like a higher floor to ceiling ratio. And then he wanted to put in heat and lighting so that he could be in there all winter long. And the reason he wanted to have this garage is because he had this hobby. Uh, it, it actually wasn't, had nothing to do with his business, with what he was doing. It was just a hobby. But his hobby was he would buy these high-end classic sports cars and he would like fix them up and work on them and make improvements to them and then he'd sell them and then he'd get another one. And this is, he just loved to do this and he was good at it and so he just spent, he spent all this time getting these cars and fixing them up and spending all this time. And I remember this guy is just sitting there and he's deliberating with me in agony over the fight he's in with the homeowners association and their lawyers have been called and there was all this litigation and he, and he said, he, I goes, I wanted to meet with you because I want you to tell me what am I supposed to do here? Like as a Christian, how am I supposed to handle this? And I'm st I remember listening to this guy, and I'm still a little jet-lagged. I'm still a little fuzzy from getting off the plane from Haiti the night before. And all I it was like hard to even process what he was saying. I remember, all I could remember thinking was, why are you so unhappy? Why are you so unhappy in the life you have? The reason that the orphan in Haiti can smile while he's on the soccer field is because he has been invited into something infinitely more abundant than he could ever provide for himself through the gospel. And he's learning about that. The reason that the wealthy business owner cannot smile while he's consumed with his stuff is actually is exactly the same reason. It's because he too has been invited into something infinitely more abundant than he could ever provide for himself through the gospel. For, for one of those people, that's good news. For the other one, it's complicated. It's complicated. These initial guests, they're invited. 
They're invited to come and be part of this banquet, but they've got other things that are competing, other pursuits. For them, it's not great news that they've been invited. They, they, they kind of had this perspective of, look, I've got land, I've got possessions, I've got relationships. Like, what do I need a banquet for? I mean, genuinely, like, like thanks for the invitation, but like, look at, look, I've, look at what I've done. Look at how I've succeeded. I don't need to go to a banquet. And so they turn down the opportunity. But then there's this other group of people, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The invitation, when it goes out to this second group of people, they're not too busy with their own pursuits, are they? To them, this is good news. To them, they realize their need. They realize their lack. These people would have been desperate. They would have been hungry, thirsty. They would have been seeking any kind of help, any kind of respite they could find. And so for them, there's nothing standing in the way. These are not the kind of people you necessarily would immediately think of inviting to a great banquet. But when the invitation comes, they say yes. But as the story progresses... The master uh, uh, says, my house is not full. There's still room. There's always still more room. There's more room. And so he says to this final group of people, go out to the roads and country lanes. Go out to the highways and byways and compel anyone you find to come in. Well, for the Jewish people, that would have been a reference to something that for them would have probably made everybody at the table a little bit uncomfortable. The highways and byways, the roads and country lanes, that's a reference to the roads that were coming in from outside the city, from outside the area where we are. These are the Gentiles. Again, this is, Jesus is referencing the gospel going to all the nations. So, so for them, this would have meant like the Gentiles, the people from other nations, they're getting invited to this. Again, for, for a Pharisee, the message was try hard. all of us as God's people need to try hard to be good. The Gentiles, these people from other nations coming in, these people are the problem with our country. That's all they would have thought. Like they're, and they're getting invited to come be a part of this banquet? Are you kidding me? This would have been offensive in this moment. And the point Jesus is making, what, what he's trying to get at here is the simple truth that every single one of us has been invited to something infinitely more abundant than we could ever achieve on our own. It's the gospel. Through the gospel, We've been invited to this great feast. Everybody has. Jesus' death on the cross was every bit as much for you as it was for anybody else. And God's desire is for the gospel to go to all the nations and to redeem as many as possible. But the question that comes back to us, the invited, is the question, what are you pursuing? What are you pursuing? The invitation's there. What are you pursuing? For some of you in this room, you've come to the place where you failed in every attempt you've made to make yourself pure, to make yourself better, to achieve some, some level of status on your own. And Jesus has truly become your all in all. He's become the focus, the highest priority of your life and following after him. For others of us in this room, we're still chasing Rusty. We're still pursuing Rusty. That next opportunity, that next thing I can buy, that next hit of that substance, whatever it is, the next sexual experience, the next relationship, the next place I can find love in whatever form I can find it in and acceptance. Some of us, what we're doing is we're, we're still chasing Rusty, convinced if we just keep pursuing him, eventually the next one is going to satisfy, but obviously it's never going to do that. 
As I think about my own life, for me, uh, the Rusties that I, as I've gotten older, I, I've become aware that a lot of times idols for me uh, come in the form of numbers. Strangely enough, it's, it's an observation I made about my life. Uh, my life can be kind of, my sense of worth, my sense of identity can kind of be summed up in a series of numbers. How much money is in my bank account? How many people attended on Sunday? Um, you know, how many likes, how many follows did I get on social media? And then as I get older, this one didn't used to be one for me, but I, as I've gotten older, it's become how many pounds do I weigh? And those numbers become like the, the major pursuit of my life, and I check them all the time. I have the app on my phone, and I check my bank account. On Monday, I sit and I wait for the report of how many people attended on Sunday, how many people watched online. I get on the scale, I'm tempted to like stand on there every morning. And, and when the numbers are in, the, in a good place, when they're, go, when they're where I think they should be, I feel good about me. But when one of those numbers is off and it's not good, there's this internal voice, this internal dialogue that begins to take place. You are worthless. Are you kidding me? That's the best you could do. That's the best. And I begin to just believe, there's like this self-talk internally that just begins to just take over I'm worthless, I'm valueless, all that kind of stuff. And so what do you constantly check? What is it? That's a good clue as to what maybe an idol is in your life. It's not always something bad. But what do you constantly check? What are you constantly looking at that, that gives you that hit, that high, that sense of identity? Here, here's what I've learned. This is, the, this is literally the only thing I've got. This is the only sermon I preach anymore. And so if you get nothing else, if you hear nothing else, hear this. Here, I can't explain this, but I just know it's true. Here's what I've learned the older I've gotten. The more I pursue Jesus, the more Jesus becomes the ultimate pursuit of my life, the more the numbers lose their grip on me. I can't explain that. It doesn't logically make sense. It's not part of any sort of program. But the more Jesus, the more I take him at his word, the more I trust him, the more I lean into his promises, the more he becomes the ultimate pursuit of my life. I'm not saying that the rusties of my life, the numbers still don't pull at me. They do. They pull at me still every day. But I just find the more I pursue Jesus, the less and less power they have over me, the less and less control. And the more I find myself recognizing who I truly am, I'm a child of God. I'm a son and that's something that cannot be taken from me. Not even by death. That's what Jesus is inviting us into. What are you pursuing? We have this um, phrase with this, uh, how do we live out zero? How, are we, how do we begin to live out the zeros? The phrase we've begun to use is uh, zero begins with one. With each of us, uh, how, do, how do we see zero happen? How does the vision of that happen? Um, whether it's zero lost people, zero unmet needs, whatever it is, when it comes to this one, zero begins with one. It means to begin to identify one pursuit in our life, and that's Jesus. It has to be Jesus. He's the only thing that ultimately will satisfy. Everything else is just a rusty. And so part of identifying that, zero begins with one, is to begin to identify even where you're sitting here right now this morning. I don't believe you're here by accident. I don't believe you're hearing these words by accident. I believe Jesus is trying to get your attention about one thing in your life. What, what's your one thing? Maybe it's a number like me. Maybe it's an outright blatant sin, and you know it's wrong. Maybe it's not a sin at all. Maybe it's just a priority that 
He's robbing you of what Jesus really wants to do in your life. But here's what I've discovered. It's usually not a list of like 10 things. Like what is that one area of my life that needs to, that needs to just be burned away from my heart so I'm fully committed, so I'm so fully surrendered to Jesus? That list is usually not 10 things. It's usually one thing. There's usually just one thing. I'm white knuckle gripped about, God, you can have everything else in my life. You can have this area, you can have that area, but you cannot have this. That's mine. This is my little project. This is my little toy. I get to hang on to this one. Telling you, there's an abundant feast greater than anything this could ever provide for you on the other side of full surrender. What are you pursuing? I'll close with this. I've noticed that nobody tells great emotional stories about catching Rusty. Nobody tells those stories, right? Like nobody sits around and says, oh, I was at the mall the other day and I saw this thing that I really wanted. And so I got out my credit card. And for 20 payments at 19% each, finally one day it was mine. Like, what? Nobody tells those stories, right? Nobody admits up to that and tells it like it's some beautiful, great story. But when people talk about the first time they tithed, the first time they came to this place of trust and dependence where they realized that money had become kind of an idol for them and they said, I'm going to begin to just return back to God the first 10% of what he's blessed me with. And for a lot of us, that it's not like there's, we're, we're using all 100%. So when you give that first 10%, there's a question of how am I even going to make it through the end of the month? And I've heard people sit and tell emotional, passionate stories, but I decided to give that. I decided to trust God and look what he did. Look at how he provided at the end of the month. Last year, a group of us from Frontline went to Ukro, Ethiopia. And uh, that's, Ukro is our care point there in Ethiopia. It's a community that we're linked and partnered with. And uh, for all of us who went, we, we, had, we, we each got to go, and as a group, we got to visit the homes of the children that we sponsored. Each of us sponsor a child, and so we got to actually go visit them in their home and see the impact that uh, child sponsorship was making and seeing the impact of what was happening in these families' lives. And those home visits, those moments are moments, I can promise you, each one of us who are on that trip will take with us into eternity. We'll take those with us to the great banquet someday. A few weeks ago, a guy came up after one of our services and, and he said, uh, hey, do you remember me? Do you remember praying with me? And he looked familiar and I kind of remembered praying with him. And, and so I like vaguely, I was like, yeah, I kind of remember praying with you. And he said, that was one year ago today that I came up and you prayed with me. He said, that's been one year clean and sober for me. Now that's a good story. That's a story worth telling. That's the kind of story, those are the kind of stories we're going to be sitting around the table in the great feast, the great banquet someday. We're going to be telling those stories. We're not going to be telling about how we caught Rusty and how we proved ourselves and we tried harder and then we did it. We're going to be saying exactly what they were saying in Isaiah 25. We trusted in him and he saved us. And he swallowed up death forever on our behalf. And at his expense, he provided for us. And look what we get to be a part of. 
look what we got to give our lives to. And these home visits when we went in, in Ukro, what we realized, every single one of us, is that they, the people in Ukro, are not like sidekicks in our hero story. We realize each one of us are sidekicks in their hero story. That's a better story to tell. That's a better story to be a part of. Those are the kind of things we've got to run after. Those are the kind of things we have to be about. Making Jesus our first pursuit so that everything else loses its grip. So Jesus, to that end, right now in this place, God, we pursue you. We lean into your promises. You said, come to me, anyone who's thirsty, and streams of living water will flow out of them. Come to me if you're weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So Jesus, we just acknowledge this morning we have been invited into something infinitely more abundant and beautiful than we could ever achieve or, or provide for ourselves. And so this morning, God, we ask you to allow us to surrender fully. Would you burn away any part of our hearts, God, that is not fully surrendered? Whatever that one thing is that we're white knuckle gripped about, would you just allow us when the invitation comes to say yes to the banquet? and the next day to say yes to the banquet, and the following day to say yes to the banquet. Would you help us to be people that continue to pursue after you with our whole hearts? And we just thank you for what you have won on our behalf, that you have swallowed up even death itself forever. So would you give us the kind of stories that we'll be excited to be telling as we sit around the feast at the table someday in the kingdom of God? We ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said,